Greetings. Thank you for sharing your heart, Joshua, this morning. And thank you, you boys, for sharing that song with us. I was blessed by hearing you sing that song. And everyone else that had a part in the sharing from Tanzania. Warren, good to see you and Kim here. Um, well, it's like it is sometimes. I'm up here and not quite, don't quite feel ready. So can you please stand for, let's, let's go before the Lord. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Yes, Lord, we are grateful to you that we don't even need to wait for the light at the end of the tunnel. But your light is with us at all times. Thank you, Lord, that that is, if, unless we are rebellious and living in sin, that is a reality, even when we, even if when we don't feel it, Lord, that you are with us. You said we should walk with you in faith, in confidence, and in trust. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We know we trust you are here this morning. We are trust you are with us. And yet you are jealous over each one of our hearts. Everyone here is special and dear to you. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us and guide us and direct us this morning. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The title that I have this morning is Government is God's Idea. Now one of the blessings, or maybe one of the challenges of going through a book as I am, as you come to passages that one does not usually choose to preach or teach on. And I don't know if I have ever, to my knowledge, taught on this uh, on this topic, the topic of the government, although I know uh, many times I would have addressed it in messages, and and that that is true. But I didn't choose this topic; I came to it. It's next in the book, and I know why I don't choose it because there's a little tension in me when I come to this topic. And I think I know what it is. I think, as I read the scripture and as I examine my own experience, I think God has a little higher view of government than I do. He has a little more praise for the government than I do. He speaks a little less critically of government than I do. And I have my opinions that are developed by experience and they're developed by hearing other people talk. (laughs) That I have my experiences about the government. And then when God speaks through Peter and through Paul in Romans 13 especially, what I think and what I say doesn't quite line up with what God says. And so, therefore, I didn't choose the topic this morning. It's dumped on my lap because it's next in the scripture. 
Have you ever felt a tension like that from any scripture, that far as that goes? I have. Here's one of them. But then we say, what is scripture for? In 2 Timothy, we had this scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So scripture has a, a an intention. It's to teach us and to correct us and to uh, equip us for life. So that's what it is. And isn't God good? Because not only does he save us, and then he cleans us, and we heard a little bit about that this morning, uh, he cleans us, and he secures us, we're secure in him, and then he molds us. He teaches us to be righteous and to be like Jesus. And that's what I want, and I trust that's what you want as well. So let's read the scripture passage that we have this morning. You can turn to Second Peter. And we'll get through more verses this morning than we normally do because we are going to be not going to all the detail that I sometimes to do. But we'll be, uh, we'll be going through verses 11 to 17 of First Peter chapter 2. So I'm going to read those verses now. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So the first verse, the first two verses actually don't, aren't quite with the topic, but I'm going to go over them. And uh, I, if I would go my typical way, I'd only get through those two verses, but I'm going to just go through them briefly to go on to our topic. So, dearly beloved... I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. It's important that we... It's important how we see ourselves. The last message, if you remember, for those that were here, that we actually had the identity of the Christian. We had... um, You were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That's an identity. That's who we are as God's people. Here are several more identities, identifiers, and it's strangers and pilgrims. 
that identifies us as we don't belong here. Well, actually, we do belong here. <laughs> we don't fit here. And as as people who are here but don't fit here, there are certain things that he beseeches, that Peter beseeches them to do. And he tells them, he says, abstain from fleshly lust. And a lust is a strong desire. It can be a good desire, it can be a bad one, generally speaking. But when it comes to fleshly lust, we're talking about wrong, wrong desires. And Galatians 5 has the list of the flesh. And we're not going to read there for brevity. But it's sins of the body and it's sins of the spirit. The sins of the spirit we heard this morning. Did we hear about, I didn't hear much about the children's lesson, but I think we heard a little bit about the sins of the spirit there. And um, pride and envy and greed. And that's the way of the country that we, that we live in, but it's not to be our way. Now, the best way I could describe it was um, when we were at uh, camping up at the cabin, we took little pieces of furniture wood along, scraps of furniture wood along for firewood. And my grandson gets his hatchet and he's splitting up these woods. And he found out very quickly that wood doesn't split every any which way you want it to split. You got to go, and he had no idea. He didn't recognize it. But you set this square piece of wood up, and you put it one way, you could hit all you want, it would nothing would happen. You put it up the other way, and with a hatchet, even a little boy can split that wood. Well, our fleshly lusts are like that wood grain. It just naturally goes that way. We have fleshly lusts, and the natural inclination is to just go with the grain. God says, don't do that. Now, he is telling us to cut that wood into smaller pieces, but don't go with the grain. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, the only way to do that is to saw the other way. And sawing takes power. Whether you have a power saw or whether you have your own power. And the illustration is, rather than... We actually need Holy Spirit power to not go with the grain and to still cut that up. And so that's, that's the illustration I have. As strangers and pilgrims, we used to go with the grain, but Peter is saying, abstain from those fleshly Don't go with the grain the way it used to go. <clears throat> And he gives the idea, the um, the desires of the flesh and the pride and indulgences are actually not innocent temptations. They're actually like insurgencies. They're actually like, well, let's, let's just think of the war front in Ukraine. The war front in Ukraine. When you indulge, when we... I say we, not going to pay you. When we indulge in fleshly lust, it is destructive to our soul, which God has redeemed. There is no other way to look at it. It wars against the soul. You have no innocent sins. Sins are not innocent. It's destructive. 
It wars against the soul. It wrecks havoc in the soul, just as the war front does in the Ukraine. And little goes as it should. But the opposite is true. When you abstain from fleshly lust, your your soul, your your spirit, actually it can thrive and it can be secure and there's safety and there's peace and there's security there. That would be the opposite. So uh, that's Peter's word for us. As a stranger and pilgrim, abstain from fleshly lust with war against the soul. <clears throat> having your conversation, the next verse, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, conversation, of course, I think you all know it means your it's your life, it's your lifestyle, the way you live. The early Christians were falsely accused. The early Anabaptists were falsely accused, often. For the most part, the accusation was false. But both of them were deemed a threat to society and society's order because they were so different and they advocated such a different view that they were spoken against as evildoers. Now, I think there was more than that going on. I think sometimes a person's righteous life brings guilt and condemnation in a sinner's heart and they don't like that and they react to that. So there's many reasons why uh, they're spoken evil against. So, they were spoken again. Now, there's a Bible principle here. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Don't return evil for evil. They're going to speak evil of you. Don't speak evil of them. And Jesus spoke directly of this in Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said to love your enemies. He said to bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So instead of returning evil, just persist in doing the good that got you into trouble in the first place. As Paul says in Romans 12, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Keep on doing good. And here's the reason. They may by your good works, which they shall behold. They're going to see your good works. They're going to see your responses. They're going to see your life. They will behold that. Then they will glorify God in the day of visitation. They will give honor to God when God visits. When I, I think this is referring to the judgment. That when God comes back, they will know that they had a witness. God will challenge them and they will know they had a witness and they will give glory to God. God, you gave me a witness. They will give glory to God. Now, we don't hate the adulterer or the homosexual or the transgender. But neither 
do we affirm them? That's how most people do. You either you hate them or you affirm them. We can treat everyone with respect and with honor, but we cannot agree with their sin. We cannot hate them because of God's word, and we cannot affirm them because of God's word. And the temptation then, as in Peter's day, as it is now, is to either rebel against everything or conform to everything. You either storm the capital or you join the opposition. And none of those are are, our options. So judgment is going to come to those false accusers. Be faithful, love them, pray for them, and they will have a witness. And now we go on in the same vein of thought here. Uh, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. And for the praise of them that do well, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know, the same vein of thought continues here, actually, because the prior verse directs us to live honest, upright lives among the Gentiles. The unbelieving neighbors, the general public, lived these lives before them, What changes now mainly is the subject. It's the government. It's the same kind of life and the same kind of attitude toward the government as you do toward your unbelieving neighbor in this area. And the goal is the same. For so is the will of God that that, that ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So that's the goal. God is not anti-government. God, uh, loving God, does not cause us to become a conspiracy theorist. Um, anarchists are not pleasing to God because government is God's plan. Government is good. Uh, after the flood, and I'm not going to turn there, but after the flood, God gave the prototype of government when he said there in Genesis 9, 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now, it's not explicitly stated, but this is an assumption, okay? So you can we can discuss this later on, but... It seems to be like before the flood, there wasn't a proper government going on. And what would have been what the outcome of it was just widespread violence, chaos. In fact, it was such widespread disorder that even God was grieved at his heart. And he, he, he took the flood and he, he washed the world clean. And after the flood... He instituted the uh, a type of government that he actually gave to mankind. And then the Babel came, and then everybody got spread out, and the governments went all over the world. And today, anywhere, anywhere you go, you'll find some type of government. 
If government would cease to exist right at this moment, we would just very likely go back to pre-flood days. Unfortunately, some parts of the world are not that far from there. And I, I had, as I was preparing, I hadn't even thought of Haiti till after I was all done preparing. I thought of Haiti. <laughs> it's the, the disorder and violence that goes on there because of a lack of a proper functioning government. So if governments would cease to exist right now, we would lightly disintegrate into pre-flood conditions. Now, with that in mind, turn to, to the parallel passage in Romans 13. I'm not going to talk much about this passage, but I like to read it so that we get this clearly in our minds. Romans 13, the first seven verses. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive of themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake, for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore unto their, uh, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This passage makes it crystal clear that God designed the government. A government is a general blessing to mankind, to the unbeliever and to the believer alike. Government is good. Government mainly exists in order to maintain peace and the rule of law and to permit the society to develop and to grow and to flourish. Immediately in my mind, there's a protest goes in my mind when I when I hear God speaking about governments like this, only on this side because many many governments, both now and in history, have caused indescribable horror to their people, suffering to their people, and Christians have been often, although not exclusively Christian, but Christian have often been singled out. It's very difficult to be a Christian in some Muslim countries. You think of North Korea. Um, in the past, it was communist Russia, Cuba. There's a lot of persecution comes from the government. And so this is some of the conflict that comes to my mind here. 
you know, but then you have to realize that government is run by sinful men. There's power and there's corruption. And it seems like power and corruption are bedfellows. They go together. And as such, as men being fallen, given this power, there's a varying degrees of fairness and justice and oppression from the government. In fact, that's what Peter's original audience was facing. The first wave of ten waves of persecution that came to the early Christians from the Romans before Constantine. There were ten waves of persecution. The first wave was just beginning at this time. And later in in Peter's letter, he actually addresses that. So, So we won't address that this morning. But the point here, what we have read, the point here... I want us to really get is God is not anti-government. He designed it. He has a purpose for it. And it is generally for the good of mankind. And let's have that settled in our hearts. And since government is for the general good of mankind, we are not to resist it in general. In other words, we're not to see it as evil. In Peter, in Peter's passage, we have the words, submit yourselves. In Romans, we have the words, be subject to. And that's actually the same word in Greek, exactly the same word, subject to, submit yourself. And, and the, the, when it talks about power there in Romans, uh, the powers that be, the power simply means authority. It means the um, authority that's been invested to the government. God has given the government the right, the authority, and even if you want to get stronger, the charge <laughs> to establish a system of laws and courts and prisons as they deem fit. And they have the right to excise taxes and authority to use force to accomplish their purposes. God has given that all to the governments. And none of that is outside of God's will. In fact, he planned it. It's part of the common grace that he gives to all mankind. When we think of the difference between, if you want to describe common grace and special grace, special grace which are the people of God have, uh, God still loves the world and he cares for the world in, in a common way. And the common grace is simply the recognition that societies need structure. They need some structure. They need some order if they're going to survive and thrive. And so, all over the world, governments go at it. In varying degrees, they have some kind of structure and order. Now, God doesn't seem, I haven't found it, God doesn't seem to distinguish what kind of government we should be subject to. Whether it's a socialist government or a capitalist government or a communist government, whether it's ruled by a... a, um, a dictatorship or a king or a democracy, whether it's ruled by 
aristocrats or a representative type of government. I don't see any of that in God, in the Word of God. In fact, Christians have and can live under all types of governments. That is not to say that some types of governments are better than others. <laughs> some types of governments are better than others. Um, there are some types of governments we prefer over others. That is true, and that, that doesn't erase that. But when we're looking at the idea of subjection, God actually doesn't give us an option whether or for this type of government we, we can, but for this someone we don't. He, that's not there. And we do have desires that our governments rule well. And there we have the, the verses in First Timothy. I'm going to read them here. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Pray for them that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. You know, this pleases God. It pleases God that we pray. It pleases God when we are permitted to live quiet and peaceable lives. And it pleases God when we live godly in that quiet and peaceable life. All three. I'm not sure when it says this is good and acceptable to God, I'm not sure which one he's talking about, but maybe the whole package. And we are fairly, we're able to fairly closely live out this ideal in this country. Well, do we pray for our government? Well, okay. Do we have a quiet and peaceable life? Yes, we do. Do we live godly life? Well, that's, you know, uh, that's that's subjective in godliness and honesty. But we're able to live fairly close to that ideal in our country, and we have for a number of generations. What if the government is not in this way pleasing to God? What if the government is corrupt and self-serving or trying to stuff everybody down its narrow ideological hole? What if you have such a government like has happened many times in history and still happens? Well, first I want to say one thing. If that happens here, or if it happens anywhere, it is not necessarily the church's fault. I say not necessarily, because it is possible for the church to have some fault in it. (laughs) Because of her lack of being a salt, because of maybe her being involved in things she shouldn't, that she may have a part of it. But it is not the church's fault that sinners sin. And it's not our fault that the government is doing what it is. We're not responsible. It is their sin if they are corrupt. If they abuse their power, that is their sin. It's not our fault and this is important because if it is our fault, then it's also our responsibility to somehow wrest the controls back. And that 
is pretty significant. Now, if our government is corrupt and self-serving, there are things a church can do. It's not like you can just sit in the corner and moan. But it's not necessarily the church's fault. I want to get that clear. And it's not necessarily our fault to get the government to out of to uh, to to get in there and somehow get things turned around again. Now, but if we are lukewarm, if we have lost our saltiness, if we have been deceived by getting improperly involved in the government, that is our fault, and that is where we can repent, and that is where we should repent. We can change our ways, and we can come back to where we are called be as God's people, as strangers and pilgrims, abstaining from fleshly lusts, and praying for our government, and living godly lives, and preaching the gospel. But it's generally not our fault or our responsibility that the government is doing what it is. So we are to submit to, to be subject to whatever type of government we are under. Peter says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now that is the verse that gave me the most difficulty. That's the verse that kept me awake at night. Every ordinance, every township ordinance, Every state law, every federal decree, every ordinance. What am I going to do with that one? Can I park illegally in the city to make a delivery when there's no parking available? I am violating an ordinance. Do I drive 55? when everybody, including the police, are driving 70. Can I drive on a 10-ton road when I know that, and there's no exceptions given except local liberty, the exception's not there. I know that the 10-ton road sign was put there to keep the fracking trucks, water trucks, on the main roads. And so everywhere you go up in those hills, they have 10-ton roads everywhere except in the main roads, but you know they're not, they don't care. But it's... Back at our old house, before we lived, we had a, a field behind us, we had a field beside us, we had a field across the road. We had a Mennonite neighbor next to us, just an older, older, older couple. But we weren't allowed to put a little cage of rabbits in our backyard, uh, a for our, for our boys because we were in a residential zoning and you're not allowed to have any animals, just your dog and your cat thing, your birds, parrots. I went to the township and they couldn't say yes. <laughs> but they didn't care. I know they didn't. There's nobody complained. They don't care. So what shall we do with every ordinance Well, let me give a little clarity to this verse. 
every ordinance is actually not referring to laws. <laughs> and I was first alerted to this when I read it in some other uh, translations. It's actually referring to governments, layers of government. And I'm going to read it in the e- English Standard Version. And then I'll read, then I'll read the King James again, and then you can actually say, oh, yeah, that, that, does, that does fit. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So it's talking that that you are not selective in what your what government you uh, are under. That you say, well, I'll I'll obey the township, but I won't obey the state, or vice versa, something like that. And so uh, you can go submit yourself to every ordinance for man to Lord's sake, and then it, then it explains what the ordinance is talking about, whether it be king as supreme or governors. You don't get to pick and choose who we are subject to. Now, you can move to another township and to another state and to another country, but then you're subject to what's there. So, does this clarification help me in my dilemma? Well, it does a little. It takes away the absolute wooden obey every ordinance. It takes that away. A little, okay? And it puts the focus where it belongs. Submit yourself to all the government authorities, for so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's this well-doing. Say this way. This well-doing is while walking through the maze of modern regulation, one honors the governing authorities in attitude and respect and obedience when it is expected and required. (laughs) The focus is not on the law the focus is on the, the government and your relationship and your respect and honor and obedience subjection to them. <clears throat> Submit for the Lord's sake, and it's not because the government is worthy, but for the Lord's sake, because it reflects poorly on God when I disdain the order and the organization that God has established for us. Just like we sometimes say this, my... Now, i can let that one go. My submission to the government is about, has something to do about my relationship with God. There was a popular creationist, some of you know his name, who... Who, uh, who had a lot of seminars all across the world, very popular, who decided that because everything he owned by God, it belongs to God, therefore he's not subject to paying taxes. 
He's not subject to paying taxes to the government because everything he owns is God's. I don't pay taxes on God's stuff. The government didn't agree with him, and he spent close to 10 years in jail. There's a health food store uh, down in Lancaster County that uh, didn't think it needed to comply to certain health orders and requirements that were put on them by the government. He was giving a lot of leeway to comply, but finally he has enough of fines racked up to put him completely out of business now. <clears throat> now, say, is that right? Well, I don't know what for regulation I didn't study. Were they, were they unreasonable? I don't know, but um, we dare not rebel unless it's a violation of God's law. I'm thinking also of the underground economy that I that unsurfaced uh, when they had the um, forget the name of but they had that oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico where uh, the Horizon I think it was or something like that where an oil well began uncontrollably putting oil in the Gulf and then this oil washed on the shores. And in there in Louisiana, they had entire villages that depended on fishing. And it, it destroyed their fishing. It destroyed their livelihoods. And not only did it destroy the fishing livelihood, but all the people who depended on the fisheries and the people who got the income, the, 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 auto, the auto mechanics and the restaurants and, the, you know, down the, the, the entire economy went in a tailspin. Well, the government said to the... BP that you have to reimburse these people. You got to pay for their lost income. But there was one problem. They operate on a cash society. They caught their fish. They sold their fish to the restaurant in cash. They paid their, their auto mechanics in cash. Why do you think they did that? <laughs> Avoid taxes. So to get reimbursement, they had approved their loss of income, and they couldn't do that. <laughs> they didn't have any income, and not much. So do you think that was a good light for them if they would have been all Christians? Submit for the Lord's sake, not because the government is worthy. It reflects poorly on God when I disdain the order and organization that God has established for us. Now, that doesn't mean we should trust the government. God is not asking us to trust the government. The government lies. It is self-serving. It is, in various ways, corrupt. What if a government... We might think a government has made itself illegitimate and untrustworthy by its actions. Should we still submit to it? And the question answer is yes. <laughs> Live. It is appropriate, of course, to appeal to the government at times, and I'm not going to go into all the areas, but the type of government we're under is is not our submission does not depend on who the government is it depends on who we are and God's will for his people 
It talks in there about uh, about the foolish men um, that ye may put to silent the ignorance of foolish men. Who are the foolish men? Well, in context, I think it, it, it is those who falsely accuse us of being a threat or a danger or a we get in the way of where society is headed or should be headed. We should live such lives that their accusations are are baseless. If they really examine the situation, uh, there's their silence. When they examine you, there is no rebellion there. There's no revolution there. You are not a threat to the government for its main purposes. Now, maybe you're, if it's all trying to stuff everybody down an ideological hole, you are a threat to that. You will not go along with that. But when you're examined, there is no revolution there. There's no rebellion in your heart. There, your taxes are paid. You are a net benefit to society. You're not a drain. You're net benefit by your labors and by your charities, by how you treat people that you don't have to. And you persist in well-doing even while you were being falsely accused. You did not respond in kind. And that's the next, that's the will of God. And the next verse continues this thought. In the end, we're going to have some more thoughts about the government, but we're going to keep on moving here in these verses, and I'll come back around here. It said, as free, and not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. We are free. We're actually not bound. Uh, we're not bound to the earth like the government and the people here. We are actually special and we're precious and we're redeemed and we're, we're actually royal seed. But, but just because we're free in that way and we're stranger to pilgrim don't belong here, that doesn't give us diplomatic immunity. We are still under the government. Matthew Henry had a quote here as I was thinking of how to get this out. I think he has it pretty close. Matthew Henry says about this verse, he said, Peter reminds them of the spiritual nature of Christian liberty. He says the Jews, which they took from the Old Testament, concluded that they were bound to obey no sovereign but one taken from their own brethren. And the converted Jews, the Christian Jews, thought they were free from subjection by their relationship to Christ. To prevent this mistake... The apostle tells the Christians that they were free, but from what? Not from duty or obedience to God's law, which requires subjection to the civil magistrate. They were free spiritually from the bondage of sin and Satan and the ceremonial law. But they must not make their Christian liberty a cloak or a covering for any wickedness or for the neglect of any duty towards God or towards their superiors but must still remember that they were the servants of God. 
So we are free, but we're also the servants of God, and so we should not. As servants of God, then we're called to do what God says in the topic we had. Verse 17, the last verse here. Honor all men. And here is something that as strangers and pilgrims, Peter tells us to do. Honor all men. And honor, to honor someone is to esteem them, the place of value on them, to respect them. And I thought, you know, thinking of situations, all men. And, of course, we're talking about government now. Um, later on, we'll come to honor the king, okay? But I'd like to talk to you. How, how has your honor been to the former health secretary of Pennsylvania, that deluded person, When you when when Peter says honor all men, it means men, yeah, men like that. <laughs> Esteem, place proper value on them, respect them, even deluded people. Don't affirm them. Obviously not. Don't throw them into the garbage with our mouths and our attitudes, but give them honor and respect. That is due. That is that is proper. Love the brotherhood is the next one. And here we see the church. God's people are not part of the rest of society. You have honor all men, but then you have love the brotherhood. And it's a distinction there's a, there's a distinction between the rest of society and and the people of God and and there's actually a verse in, in Galatians that I that brings it out I brought this out before a while ago Galatians 6:10 as we therefore have opportunity let us do good unto all men and then he says especially those that are the household of faith there's a special place for God's people there is a distinction. It is not discriminatory to prefer your brothers and sisters above others. There's a proper there's a, there's a wrong way for that, but there's a proper place for it. Our brothers and our sisters get preferential treatment, and that is God's will in the proper way. We could, we could, of course, have a long discussion where the post perimeters and all that is, but we're not do that. Fear God is the next one, and that, and that puts God in His proper place. God is highest on the list, so you can honor all men, you can love the brotherhood, but you fear God. God is number one, and never. Ever, ever, may he, should he, may he be anywhere else in our lives. We had talked about fear earlier. Don't fear the government. Yeah, you can fear the government if you disobey it, and you can fear its punishment because it has a sword. 
But God has eternity. The government and other people have a sword, and we have a proper fear for them. But God has eternity. Fear God. A passage in Luke that talks about don't fear them which can kill the body, but fear him which can throw both the body and soul into hell. I say fear him. Jesus told us to fear God, and now here does Peter. And finally, honor the king. And it's not just submit, but honor. Honor the president. If you are part of that kingdom, we're talking about a two kingdom, we're, we're to, we have two kingdoms, you're part of that kingdom, then disrespect him and talk meanly of him and try to get him out and just trash him if you're part of that kingdom. But if you're part of God's kingdom and you want to be obedient to God, then honor the king. Honor the president. Now, a little bit of clarity here. Jesus did call Herod a fox. That's an insult to call somebody a fox. Uh, maybe he tell you, uh, maybe there's different ways to look at that. But I, I, what I take from that is this: there is a place to honestly talk about situations. So when you're talking about honoring the king, honoring the president, I'm not talking that you airbrush him and you just make him look everything beautiful and everything is great. No. You can talk honestly about what's going on, and that's okay. That's okay to talk really honestly. If there's corruption going on, you can talk that there's corruption going on. If there's hypocrisy in the government, you can talk about it. That's okay. You're, you're not uh, has more to do with our attitude and more to do with our disdain and that kind of thing than it does what you say. Your attitude is all important here. Now, some things don't have to be said either. I mean, you don't have to say everything, okay? <laughs> Just because it's true doesn't mean it needs to be said. But... You can talk about government officials, and you can be real, and you can acknowledge that there is corruption and so on. And that's, that's sort of what I get, uh, the, the balance of Scripture. <clears throat> so it's not just okay to just gloss everything over and act like everything's okay when it isn't, because it's not everything okay. But honor that man and honor that office. Now, generally, we also accept that the Bible teaches that there is a future government coming that we must reject. There's a coming man called the Antichrist. He will control the world. He will have an ideology, and he will aggressively enforce his dogma and philosophy. And he will use every form of persuasion that he has, including force, 
including economic controls to get everybody to comply to his agenda. And the persecution, I understand, will be pretty intense. Now, that is a little bit different than what we were talking about this morning. That's going to be a government. It's going to be somebody in con- that uh, we, we need wisdom to identify that system when it comes, whether it's going to be in 20 years from now or 500 years from now. We do not know. <clears throat> but you and I have met people who reject the current government. And they do for various reasons, and they heard all the things, the, the barcode, the social security number, the credit card, the chip in your hand. And they reject the current government in various degrees, sometimes completely. The current government, which God says is for our good, that we are to submit to. Because the Antichrist is not now. It's not here. We're not under the Antichrist. We are not to do that. Did you know that getting a chip implanted under your skin that has information about you and maybe gives you access to buildings or whatever, I don't know what all they do, that that chip is not the mark of the beast. That is a technology. The Antichrist will use that technology. He will use it. But that is not the mark. Just like the credit card is not the mark. Now, I have no qualms if you say, I don't want that stuff. I'm going to pull back from that, and I'm just going to do things the old way, and I have no qualms with that at all. That, In fact, God bless you if you want to do that. That's fine. But it is important for us to distinguish between new technology and the Antichrist system. So if you don't feel at ease with a new technology, that's okay. And um, and I, I, I tend to think that possibly... I don't know, but I tend to think probably those that are a little bit in the backside of technology are in a better place when the Antichrist comes. And, and I grant all that. I, I do. But let, let's, let's look at things clearly. That said, we do live in perilous times today. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about current events here yet. We, we have a liberal wing of the government in our country that has a goal and it is to remake society into a it completely remake society into what it wants to be uh, the, the liberal element has has a vision of what a, a utopian vision actually of what it wants society to be and it has its methods of how to get there <clears throat> Their vision is blatantly ungodly, and they don't mind overriding individual individuals and individual rights and responsibility to achieve their goals. 
And that can look scary to us. And though there is another section of society, and many of them are called Christians, who are in hand-to-hand combat against the liberals to keep them from implementing those ideas and those ideals. And they are calling for all the help and all the support they can get. And they are calling for us. They are calling for us, whether you heard it or not. And we are made to feel guilty if we actually don't participate to stem this evil tide. And every year, every year, there are some Anabaptist Christians who answer that call and respond. Conservative Anabaptists, they are pulled into the conservative political agendas. Actually, it can go both ways. The call goes both ways. If if you have a liberal bent, you have to get pulled onto the liberal side of the, the, the whole society. And if you have a conservative bent, you'll be get pulled over here. Now, most of us will be in a conservative bent, but I have talked to people in fairly conservative churches, and they were surprised how many liberals <laughs> they are there, especially in the last pandemic and, and some of the things that, that came out of that. So, so if you have liberal bent, you might be pulled into the social justice side of things. And this can be as little as voting in political elections all the way to supporting candidates and promoting their causes. Now, this one would be a message all in itself, and I, I, I'm not going to get into it. Um, this is a, this, that's a topic. That's a Dean Taylor topic. <laughs> if you know him, he's spoken about it, the, the, the change of allegiance, and, and uh, he goes into how the, the, the Mennonites in Germany got hooked up and connected with the conservative political party in Germany in the 30s. And you know what the conservative political party was in Germany in the 30s? It was Hitler's regime. It was the Nazis. They were anti-communist. They were, they were nationalists. They were weird of people. It's the same thing you hear here. And many of the Mennonites got pulled into that. It was not a good thing. And um, and every so often a wave comes along. Uh, the prohibition in the early 19, in the early 1900s when prohibition, that's the, uh, the alcohol was such a scourge in society that they thought the government just outlaw alcohol, the problem will go away. <laughs> and, and so you had this movement and they pulled a number of, Mennonites, it's a pull to get them in because, after all, you want people to stop drinking, don't you? It's a good social cause, and they get pulled into the political system. And today, it's actually abortion is 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 a strong pull how to bring people into the political arena. Although, I think, well, it's it's numerous things. But what happens if you are sim- if we you we if we are sympathetic? To the conservative cause in government, there's a seed planted in us. 
in this sense that when a perfect storm comes, we'll get sucked into it. That's the danger. It is good for us to know that there is a clear distinction between the two kingdoms and that we are strangers and pilgrims, that we have our calling, and our calling will keep us busy for the rest of our life. And then you have this calling, and the two are distinct. And if that's the way, that perfect storm that comes will not affect you or me. But if you already had tendencies, and you have an ear for that, and your emotions get pulled into that now, well, someday the storm will come, and you'll be gone. You'll be with it. You'll be one of those every year that get pulled into that system. The true Christian will always be on the margins of society and culture. Always. Because we don't believe, according to Scripture, we don't believe that the Christians will take over the world. Not according to our understanding of Scripture. So what is our force and witness to the world? A few points here at the end here. It's not political power, but the preaching of the gospel backed by personal piety and persuasion. What is our force and witness? It's not a state or a state church forcing people to believe or behave, but it's a community of people living life together, separate, distinctive, living in such a way that will be the testimony for Christ. What is our force and witness? It's not government programs and handouts, but it's charity to unbelievers and discipleship to believers that will have a long-term impact, eternal, in fact. Governments can be more or less friendly to true Christians, but there was never a time, New Testament time, when a government or America or any other country was Christian. There was never a government that was Christian in the sense of following the Lord Jesus explicitly. That never happened. It's not his plan. The government is a preserving grace. They keep law and order. The church is involved with redeeming grace, restoring the effects of fallen mankind. The government doesn't do that. It's not its job. But we need to let the government do its job. And in the end, the title, government is God's idea. <laughs> Let us live and act accordingly. Can we kneel for prayer? Father, thank you, Lord, that you are, in your wisdom, have provided so many things for us on so many layers Many benefits and blessings that you have given to us that sometimes we don't even think about. Lord, this morning, the topic, there's many, many areas we have not addressed. And there is many, many ways we could go, Lord. And I don't have the answers for all of them, Lord. We don't. But, Lord, I pray you teach us where we should be, 
how we should see ourselves, how we should act, how we should relate to the greater society and the government, how we should honor and submit and be subject to them. Lord, I thank you. I thank you have made it as clear as you have in your word and with a, with a searching heart, Lord. It will not be that hard. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Pray you be with us this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <clears throat> you.